I would just go in and say, well, how much easier can we do this? And then I'd wind up doing that and then get bored. And then I'd go leave and go find another gig. Then I discovered they pay people to do that. I knew the methodology worked. How do I describe that methodology in a way that people could get it? Top leaders, meaningful conversation, actionable advice, bulldoze complacency, ignite inspiration, create impact. Produced by Southwestern Family of Companies. This is the Action Catalyst. Are you interested in advertising with the Action Catalyst? Our listeners could be hearing about your brand right here, right now. For details, shoot us an email at info at theactioncatalyst.com. Hello, Action Catalyst listeners. Today's guest is someone whose work personally impacted me as a young man and whose work continues to be spun into numerous editions and versions, printed in dozens of languages, and implemented across the globe. We're speaking with author and productivity consultant David Allen, best known for 2001's groundbreaking book and time management method, Getting Things Done. And David, you're joining us from Amsterdam today. I live here nine years. How did you end up in Amsterdam? You know, we just wanted to become more global in terms of both our work and our interests and our focus. We loved California, where we came from, and uh, we saw people slightly older than us looking a little more sedentary than we wanted to be. So we said, you know, come on, let's throw a dart. It's time for an adventure. Could have been anywhere as long as I was near a good airport. But we'd been here a couple of times. We love the city. I mean, it's an eye candy city. It's gorgeous. And we love the Dutch. We love the culture. And we've since we've been here, we've... Yep. Falling in love with it. Are you a cyclist now? I'm not like you know, I'm not like one of those guys dressed for the for the kill. A latex. <laughs> no, 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 no. Adam, where are you now? Where where are you talking from? Texas. I know it well. I grew up in Shreveport. So we traveled around in Dallas and, and Houston doing debate tournaments. And I had an I had an uncle who was head research chemist for Texaco for many, many years and he lived in Bel Air. So, you know, I, part of what I think brought up this connection was I was interviewing Nick Sonnenberg. He had just come up with a book, kind of a his take on time management strategy. And I brought up, I said, you know, my first exposure to time management at all was your book, Getting Things Done. And I read it when I was 21 because I had an interesting path in college where I was selling educational books, running a sales organization during my summers between college. That's how I paid for school. But it required a tremendous amount of organization. And it was my worst functional trait as a human. <laughs> and picked up your book, read it, and it was very transformational. Well, I'm always delighted to run across people where some of this sticks. I never know what sticks. Good for you. Yeah, thank you. And so when I was coming through some notes about you, it was just so interesting to hear your initial life story. I mean, you just mentioned growing up in Shreveport. How does one go from Shreveport to, hold on, a magician, waiter, karate, teacher, landscaper, vitamin distributor, travel agent? I can't even say them all. <laughs> I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. And, you know, I didn't grow up in deep pockets. And so I had to I always had to work make spending money to do whatever I wanted to do. So it banged around a whole lot. Then got very interested in, in my school, got very interested in liberal arts, sort of expanding my vision. Also, I was the sort of child actor in Shreveport. I had two or three significant roles as a child in the community theaters there. I had an opportunity to experience a lot of people and things that were kind of outside what you might consider the Shreveport culture early on. My mom was quite open to having me just go experience whatever I wanted to experience wherever. So uh, that's what I did. 
I've got to ask too, I mean, it, early in your life, I, I couldn't help but wonder, like it was organization time management something you'd consider a strength back then of yours? No, I, I've always been somewhat organized. I mean, I, I, I always liked when I had my own room in my little house in Shreveport, my mom had someone come in and build kind of a wall-to-wall desk, you know, that I could do my homework in, I could do other things in. And I've always, always liked that. I'm just a lazy guy. I don't like to have to look for things. You know, so I've always been sort of attracted to just clear space. I don't like to be distracted. I don't like to have to do stuff. I'm just Mr. Lazy. I mean, I, don't don't make me work or think any more than I have to. You know, I didn't have that as a conscious notion. It was not a conscious process. Right. So you you do graduate work in American history, and so I'm trying to get the transition. All these odd and end jobs, and then all of a sudden, boom, business productivity in the 1980s for Lockheed. <laughs> You know, I dropped out of graduate school. I was sort of, I was studying people who were enlightened and decided to want it my own. So I dropped out to try to just sort of discover who I was. And come on, this is the 60s in Berkeley. And so that's, that's when sort of self-exploration and whatever. So a lot of experimentation, a lot of exploration, martial arts, meditation practices. Who are the gurus out there? What are they doing? What are they teaching? What can I learn about any of that? So I was you know, kind of engaged in that. Of course, they weren't paying people to do that. So I had to, <laughs> had to pay the rent. What I like to do is go in and see what people needed, see if I could help them. And those were my areas of expertise. I would just go in and say, I was kind of a good number two guy. I'd say, well, how much easier can we do this? And then I'd wind up doing that and then get bored. And then I'd go leave and go find another gig. Then I discovered they pay people to do that. They called them something. And so that's when I hung out my shingle in 1982 and said, okay, let me just see if I can sell myself on a project by project basis since that's what I seemed to do. And I didn't want to be hung up with anything. And so that just became, a, we didn't call it coaching back then, but that's, that's kind of really what it was. was yeah. Um, and then that threw me, thrust me into the corporate training world. And they were the ripest audience. So, you know, at a certain point, you know, come on, Adam, it took me 20 years to figure out what I'd figured out and that nobody else had done it. And then it was bulletproof. So I had some good coaching. Somebody said, well, you should write the book. I didn't, never wrote a book. The first edition of Getting Things Done, mm. published in 2001. I had no idea whether anybody was going to buy it or interested in it. I just had to get it out of my head. You know, one of the things that we often talk to leadership about is the, the four um, levels of competency. At the beginning of anything new that you endeavor, uh, you're an unconscious incompetent. And uh, hopefully you became a conscious incompetent, meaning you're at least aware that you're not good at this. <laughs> and then you become a, a conscious competent and eventually an unconscious competence where it's where so natural that it just becomes easy for you. Yeah. Couldn't agree more, by the way. That's that's exactly how that works with people with my methodology. Yes. Uh, well, I, I'm, a, I'm a case study for you. <laughs> but you know, one of the things that I think is the hardest to do is to, to reverse engineer it. And this is what I wanted to ask you, because I, I imagine just hearing kind of your, a lot of the stuff came naturally to you personally. And so I see you as, especially in the earlier part of your career, as an unconscious confident at this stuff, right? You were doing it. What I find so challenging sometimes is to go backwards and become a conscious competent again, because that's what we're required to write the book you did. It's it, You almost have to like consciously realize the steps that it took to get you to where you are. Actually, that wasn't quite my path, Adam, because what I figured out was the methodology and started to implement it. I knew the methodology worked. Yeah. So I didn't have to reverse engineer that. I just said, how do I describe that methodology in a way that people could get it? That's right. And it was kind of agonizing to write the book because I wanted to give people the model. I wanted to give them how to implement the model, 
but I also wanted to tell them all the, and oh, by the ways, the subtle stuff that's going to happen when you actually do this. And I tried to lump that all together kind of the way I did seminars that didn't work. Hmm. It took me a year to write the first draft and the first draft didn't work. It was, it was the way I did a seminar, but you don't read a book the way that you go to a seminar. It was my big learning about what to do with what I'd come up with. How did So how did you know the first draft didn't work? I was getting feedback from people that was giving sort of early versions of this. And they said, oh my God, David, you nailed me in your first paragraph, but it takes three chapters to get to how to do it. Mm. Like, oh, okay. Oh, geez. And also, you know, Adam, you know, I'm a big believer in affirmations and, and visioning and so forth. And the first thing I wrote before I started writing the book were the reviews. I wrote the reviews, my anticipated best case reviews that people would write about the book I'm about to write. Hmm. And that raised the bar internally for me hugely. And it's so incredibly challenging for many people to get their thoughts on paper in a concise way, in a relatable way. Too many people try and write a book for everyone. If you just think of one person you've coached and how you'd speak to that one person, you find your voice a little bit easier than trying to talk to everybody. Yeah. Well, the same is true if you're, you know, I've done thousands of presentations for hundreds and thousands of people out there just in terms of my work. I may be talking to 5,000 people, but I need to talk to one and then they all get that I'm talking to them because I've stepped myself down to being personal, you know, and authentic. Yeah. And and so I, I actually did buy the revisited, updated edition with, you know, the upgrade of technology. And, and honestly, I think the book was written... I don't know if the right phrase is technology agnostic, just meaning that it's applicable regardless of upgraded technologies as long as you lean into the principles. You're still going to read that book when you fly to Jupiter in 100 years. That's right. You still need an end basket. You still need to decide next actions. You still need to then park the reminders of those things in some sort of system that the right people will see at the right time that then reflect on or notice the status so that you can get to Jupiter or get off Jupiter. That's right. Yeah, so. We made it as evergreen as possible. But that it that's the cool thing about it was I uncovered something over all these years that was totally evergreen. That's universal. I wanted to ask, are you still doing some one on one work? Every once in a while, some pro bono I'm doing. And if somebody wanted to engage me for a whole year, which I did with uh, Drew Carey, you know, when I first you know, several years ago, he hired me for a year. Oh wow. Well, some of the applications just for listeners, the aspects that I felt were valuable personally were the concept of separating your task list to uh, make it more consumable, right? Because I think everybody can relate to the pain of seeing 150 things on their to-do list. And it's a combination of at-home tasks, work tasks. Yeah, I know, I understood. This concept of splitting those tasks into the relevant geography that they belong to or the, the right next action folder. If you split this to-do list into these different folders that are more based on when you can tackle those to-do items so that you're able to just dive right in when you have the time. One of the challenges that sometimes I run into personally with clients is that the job or position that someone's in or their their world may not be so cleanly separated as some of the examples that you give. So it's just curious how you guide people now as to maybe what you find to be the common and best practice next action buckets. Well, probably the best way to start that would be to have somebody list all 120 things on one list and say, does that work for you? Hmm. And say, okay, how would you split that out? It should be pretty obvious that errands should be its own list. 
it should be pretty obvious that stuff to talk to my life partner about should be it's on list. It should be somewhat obvious. Here are the websites I need to surf when I have a good internet connection. For me, it was important to, to distinguish between stuff I could do when I had a good web connection and stuff I on a plane when I didn't. But maybe let me reverse engineer this back for you, Adam, to say how this all started. This all started back in 1983 or 84 when I started doing public seminars around us with handing people public planners that we had found were the best planners to do this. And then creating a list called next actions and a list called projects. And we just, you know, sort of the, the basic categories. And then at some point, this weird thing showed up called a mobile phone. Mm. Until then, pretty much all the actions you could take would be done, you know, in pretty much one or two environments max. That's right. So as soon as the mobile phone showed up, guess what was possible? You could make calls from almost anywhere. So I went, wow. So what I did was I split my own next actions list into next actions calls and all the rest. Because mm. that made sense. Because now, while I'm at with a phone, I can't do any other stuff, but I could make all these calls. And then I was doing a seminar and I had a, a great old friend. He was semi-retired and he had a sailboat. And he took my seminar and he said, wow, David, there's a lot of stuff I need to do at my sailboat, not about my sailboat, because a lot of things I need to do about my boat, I need to go to the marine store and buy X, Y, and Z. He said, but there are a lot of things I always like to do when I'm on my boat. So I created an at boat list. Well, that's cool. So that's how all this started. And and then, you know, after all these years, we just gave people in the, my book the typical categories that people up until that time anyway found it useful or practical to separate things to do at the computer, phone calls to make, stuff to talk to people about, things I'm waiting for. But I've had people show up. They like to list their same goal. Here's things that provide service to other people. Here are things that provide personal service to myself. Here's things. And they organized it by emotional value. Yeah, it's it's less rigid, right? It's yeah, it's it's really taking that consultative perspective with yourself or another person that you're helping and saying, you know, what's important to you, what what is your life segmented into, and then help them batch accordingly. Yeah, a big piece of any transformation, and I, I guess you probably experienced this working in a coaching relationship with anybody for a year. You realize that it's that change is hard for people, right? And part of what makes change so can be so difficult is uh, how rooted they are in habits that they've done their entire life. So I just was kind of curious, your most difficult scenarios of breaking someone's bad habits and what you found helpful in getting them attached to this new way of showing up. I haven't done that so much myself. Frankly, I am not an expert at changing habits. I'm not. We know now that obviously follow-up, and so we have a lot of coaches around the world. We've certified and a lot of what they do is do follow-ups or they do coaching in like eight sessions virtually with people so they can work with them and then check with them in two weeks and say, how are you doing or whatever. So there's a lot of the keep it going stuff that helps build those kind of habits. The biggest issue that most people have is their addiction to ambient anxiety. They're willing to be waked up at three o'clock in the morning about something they can't do anything about. Yes. How do you change that? My job has been to demonstrate what it's like to walk around and have nothing on your mind. No matter how busy or whatever you're doing, that's kind of how I live my life. And people go, wow, David, you look so relaxed. What's going on? What's not keeping you relaxed? What do you need to do about that that you need to do to get that off your mind so that's not spinning around you in some inappropriate way so you can trust? You'll see that thing in front of the door you need to take to the office tomorrow as opposed to trying to remember you need to take that thing. Why don't you build 
systems that remind you of stuff and you have to do them. So you become a dumb and stupid like me most of the time, because I just already made my decisions. Then I have the freedom to become a dumb and stupid and have fun and then still do effective stuff. As simple as that sounds, that's it. Yeah. That really, that really is it. Now, to what degree someone buys into that, to what degree someone integrates any of that, if you just write a few more things down than you would normally, you're going to improve your life. If you just decide what's the next action on something a little bit sooner than when it shows up instead of when it blows up, you're going to improve your life. If you just implement the two-minute rule, anything in your email box right now that you could actually complete and get rid of in two minutes or less should not be there. That's going to improve your life. You just have to decide how much of that you think you need. You know, we'll, we'll ask people on a scale of one to 10, you know, how do you feel like you are with your time management? And we'll kind of outline what a 10 means and a one means to most people. And you get a lot of people answer four, five, six. And the interesting, you know, question after that is, you know, it's really the ones that I don't worry about too much. Because if you're at rock bottom in time management, like I was when I was 21 and bought your book, you know, there's only one direction to go from there and life's going to get hard real fast unless you change. But in the middle, you can live your entire life without realizing what you're capable of and be mediocre at something. And that's how a lot of people, they, they don't haven't lost enough to where they really want to make change. Well, you're going to change out of pain more than inspiration. You'll change out of both, but the pain is wins by far. You know, we, we hear people who've had so much success in life and it's really easy to go, well, they always had it. They always did it. Life was like a Disney movie and there were no bumps in the road, right? And that's rarely, if ever, true. And and so I guess my question to you is, what were some of those bumps in your your Disney movie of a story? Well, we, we had to make a decision at some point when the book was successful about whether we should try to scale the GTD methodology education any further than... See, I could have just stopped everything and just with the success of the book, just had a career of speaking. But I had, you know, by that time, 30 or 40 people on staff and they were, we were doing work and doing coaching and training around the U.S. quite a good bit. And I said, come on, guys, should we do this? And they all said, yeah, we should do that. Okay, how do we scale this kind of business? Because to a large degree, it was based upon me and my really well-trained facilitators that could inspire people to do this one-on-one. How do you scale something like this? And so trying to figure that out, and we're still working that out. So that was a big decision to make that decision to begin with. It wasn't painful, but it was challenging. A couple of big mistakes that I've made in the process were because I made some decisions before I should have without doing due diligence about whether that was the right decision. So hiring a senior person, that didn't work out. It was expensive and painful making a deal with someone to partner with me in, in one of my book deals that I shouldn't have done then, that they're getting a whole lot more value out of this than I, I could have had some other people who were closer to me that could have made you know a lot more money that would have been more fun if they'd been involved in that. So a lot of these were decisions that were made because people were pressuring me, okay, what do we need to do? Or I was pressuring myself, that, oh yeah, I need to make that decision you know, about that. But you know, live and learn. It's hard to denigrate some rungs of your ladder. I mean, I got a great life and lifestyle. You know, it's so hard to say that all those were learning experiences, things that I had to, that I went through and that I, I learned stuff about. You know, obviously, it's <laughs> pretty big challenges before, you know, back in my, in my 20s. But that was a lot about, you know, a lot of experience I had, but drugs that was not that was exploration. I wasn't escaping. I was exploring. I was back in the 60s. It was like, wow, what's out there? What's up there? What's 
whatever. And so, but that didn't help a lot uh, in terms of my nervous system and my physiology or whatever. And then I read, a, then I got kind of ran off the rails for a little while. Uh, and so, kind of understanding how that happened and what I needed to do about that, and then how do I could come back to a level of cooperation with my world, you know, that worked. So that was a pretty big change. <laughs> that was a big change. That's right. With methamphetamine or something that was. Oh, I did everything. I snorted heroin for a year. There were hardly any drugs that I didn't experiment with, but it didn't help my nervous system kind of fried it. Sure. Yeah. I haven't done any recreational stuff since 1971. So. And you live in Amsterdam. I mean, that's an amazing. <laughs> well, come on. The Dutch don't do that. It's only the tourists that show up that do all that stuff. You know? <laughs> um, and so, you know, I think in, in retrospect, knowing and having gone through this journey that you've gone through, how would, uh, the David Allen today, what kind of advice would you provide that 20 or 21 year old self having been through your life already, right? Like if you could go back as a mentor. I would say you have an intuitive voice that's in there right now. It's always been there. It will always be there. Learn to quiet yourself and ask the right questions and listen to the intuitive voice that loves you, cares about you, doesn't judge you, but will give you really, really good advice. I didn't learn that for another 20 years in my life, probably at that point. I would say that and relax. That's a great piece of advice. And just as a kind of a last, maybe couple of quick fire questions, what are the books that you're reading, call it the last five or seven years that have been influential to you? I'm going to give you two big ones. One is a book called Humankind, Rutwick Bregman. He's a Dutch writer, but it's fabulous book, even in English. It's a lot about how actually good human nature really is. And it's a big rant about the sensational media that's made it out as if there's so much bad going on in the world. He's going, no, there's not. And he's got a lot of good data and a lot of good statistics and stuff in there to prove that people in shut, when push comes to shove, they help each other out. They're good people. There's a goodness to the human consciousness. I'm actually, I, I read something this morning or yesterday, and they've done a study that short little pieces of kindness is a universal trait across the world. That people actually are very, the majority of what they do, how they interact with people is helping people and being kind and being useful to them in some way. So come on, this is not something you get when you read, read the media. Now, here's another one. The 1619 Project. So this is a compilation of some of the most elegant essay you can imagine about how slavery as an institution has impacted on the U.S. culture, history, culture, politics, everything else. I was an American history major, Adam, and I read this and went, oh my God, I had no idea how much American history taught in schools ignores some of the key elements of how much of our culture was created by that institution. Yeah. Wow. It's a page turner. Thanks for sharing all about a changing perspective. And for people to be able to find you and, and some of the resources and tools, obviously the book, Getting Things Done, uh, you've published two other books as well, correct? Yeah. Ready for Anything, Making It All Work, and then uh, GTD Workbook and, uh, and GTD for Teens. So I've done a few of those. And we again have a new book coming out for teams, and that's going to be out first of the year. Ah. You know, all these years, people have 
run across my stuff, implement it. And I said, oh my God, if I could get people around me to do this, it'd be so much cooler and so much easier. And I've never had the bandwidth to really produce that manual Now we have. I've got a fabulous co-author, Ed Lamont, from, from the, our partner in the UK. It's dynamite. And by the way, if anybody wants just more of my shtick, gettingthingsdone.com is a website. You'll see a lot of resources there. Sign up for a newsletter if you want. But gettingthingsdone.com slash YouTube, you can see my three TEDx talks I've done. You can see tons of short little snippets of videos of tips and tricks or whatever if you're interested in a little more snacking. Yeah, love it. Yeah, again, appreciate your time and being on here. And uh, thanks for the impact. You got it, guys. Delight me. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. And to stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and on Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. And thanks for listening.